Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast and critical theory. My name is Lucas Hoffman, and I'm one of the hosts of the podcast series. I'm also a graduate student in the Carolina Duke Graduate Program in German Studies and a visiting scholar at the Humboldt University in Berlin. Joining me today is Sebastian Truskolowski, an assistant professor in German Cultural Studies at the University of Manchester. His PhD was awarded in 2016 by Goldsmiths University of London, where he was affiliated with the Department of Visual Cultures and the Center for Philosophy and Critical Thought. Before going to Manchester, Sebastian taught German and comparative literature at Trinity College Dublin and King's College London, and was awarded a fellowship from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation for his research at the Leibniz Centrum for Literatur und Kulturforschung in Berlin. Today, we'll be talking about his book titled Adorno and the Ban on Images. Sebastian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very pleased to be here and looking forward to discussing the book. Yeah, yeah. I'm very much looking forward to discussing this with you. I, I really enjoyed reading, uh, reading your book. So let's just let's go ahead and start with the, with the classic new books question. What brought you to write this book? Yeah, well... Um, the book uh, was born out of a, a PhD project. This is, in fact, a reworked version of my uh, thesis, which, as you noted, I completed in 2016 at uh, the University of London's Goldsmiths uh, College. Um, I began working there initially with um, Alex uh, Duttmann, who had uh, then, after some time, moved to, uh, to Berlin, and I continued the project and then uh, wound up finishing it with Alberto Toscano. Um, and some input from from other colleagues uh, who were on hand. Uh, I applied um, with a project on Adorno, um, having been struck in my reading by a kind of conspicuous recurrence of this uh, these references to the Old Testament ban on image making or uh, idol worship, if you like. Um, and it seemed to me uh, to be an unusual kind of you know figure or motif or image, you know, no pun intended. For Adorno to uh, to reach for, uh, you know, given his sort of uh, um, explicitly uh, Marxist and materialist uh, orientation, uh, and so I began to wonder about, you know, how it is that he made this, um, uh, or that he hoped to make this uh, uh, notionally theological figure uh, work uh, for him, and since it seemed to recur at kind of critical junctures in his. Uh, thinking on on epistemology, on on aesthetics, but also uh, in his kind of fraught relationship with with metaphysics, uh, it seemed to me that it might be, uh, you know, at the very least, an interesting exercise to try and make sense of how that that works uh, or doesn't uh, for him. Uh, and as I began to pull that thread, um, 
you know, I found that, you know, it, it, it began to resonate with, with other and more contemporary kind of philosophical issues that were on my mind, questions around uh, materialism, around uh, Marxism, uh, around uh, a thinking of kind of utopia in the, in the present. Um, and so uh, what started out as a kind of, you know, point of, you know, textual or philological curiosity uh, wound up, for me at least, as a bigger sort of philosophical uh, set, of, set of questions and wound up uh, starting from this very modest sort of standpoint in order to engage with Adorno's work uh, and some of its contemporary resonance more, more broadly. Yeah, yeah, I think that comes through so clearly uh, in in your in your book. Um, you do make the decision not just to sort of look at the sort of the back uh, history of, of Adornian thought and looking at uh, Marx and Kant and Hegel, um, but you also choose to include contemporary theorists like uh, Mesayu, uh, Agamben, Lyotard, and others. Could you maybe talk a little bit about your decision to include post-Adornian thinkers in this book as well? Yeah, um, I think. Uh the reason I decided to do that was partly to illustrate my sense that Adorno was engaging with issues that uh, continue to interest, you know, philosophers also in the in in the present, and you know, also people from very different kind of camps and intellectual intellectual trajectories, if you like, uh, people like Meassou, like Agamben, like uh, Lyotard, but. Um, the uh, reason I decided to include them in the book, apart from illustrating the kind of contemporary relevance of, of Adorno, uh, was that I thought it spoke in a way to an aspect of Adorno's method, if you can call it that, which is that he tends to um, play off existing positions against each other by way of forging his own kind of uh, you know, standpoint, if you can call it that. Um, and I thought that maybe in, inhabiting this way of working would actually work well for the for, for the for the book. So yeah, kind of a two two part answer. On the one hand, to illustrate the contemporary resonance, I, I hope contemporary resonance of what Adorno was 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 doing, and in part uh, to to work in a way that I hope is sensitive to the way that Adorno himself uh, chose to work in engaging with questions of uh, materialism, for example, in the case of Meassou, but. Uh, also aesthetic questions in the engagement with with Lyotard. Yeah, I I, I think you uh, the book does quite a, a wonderful job of arguing for the contemporary relevance of Adorno, and in many ways, I think a lot of thinkers have sort of moved past Adorno without really engaging, especially the the arguments from Adorno and the, the this idea of the in, image ban uh, and Adorno's sort of motivations and arguments for a sort of ban on utopian thought. Um, and they've sort of moved past it without engaging with it directly. And so I think like bringing bring back in those contemporary uh, theorists really does uh, draw in the, the contemporary uh, relevance of, of Adorno's thought. So moving further, the first, the first chapter of your book, uh, like in many ways, right, can be understood as a close explication of Adorno's epistemology, right, as a sort of epistemological focus by a rather interesting um, means of a critique of Lenin. So you look at Adorno's critique of Lenin uh, and um, in order to explicate his epistemology. So can you maybe give our listeners a sense of the stakes of Adorno's imageless materialism, right? This yeah, that's right. So the formulation of an imageless materialism is um, the title of a uh, subsection of, of negative dialectics in the, the, the first part, uh, what Adorno sometimes refers to as the kind of, you know, epistemological or epistemocritical sort of part of the 
book. Um, the reason that uh, I engage in this chapter with Adorno's reading of, of Lenin really kind of forced itself on me, if you like, um, because of um, the fact that Adorno um, himself explicitly engages with Lenin there. Um, however, he does so in a way that is ultimately, I think, kind of um, polemical, shall we say, right? This is not uh, reading uh, of Lenin with Lenin and on Lenin's terms, so to say. It, it's um, an occasion for Adorno to intervene kind of polemically in, in uh, a conversation about you know, the philosophical stakes of, of, of Marxism more generally. Uh, and he chose to set up, you know, I mean, on some reading, one might say a kind of a straw man in the form of, 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 of Lenin, whose uh, materialism or, you know, um, kind of concept of materialism he, he, he sketches in order to then take it down and in doing so kind of, you know, lay bare his, his own um, sort of take on, on uh, the issue of, philosophical materialism and the way that it relates to, to a thinking of politics and so on in, in Marx. Uh, the reason, the other reason I wound up with this, uh, you know, engaging with this question of an imageless materialism is because the way Adorno sets up the, the, the case, the way Adorno sets up this polemic with, with, with Lenin is that he claims that um, Lenin's uh, account of a primacy of matter, which is supposed to, in the end, in, in Lenin's own big book on uh, materialism and imperial criticism from 1908, this kind of you know, meta-scientific opus, the way he sets that up is that Lenin's epistemology, his account of, of the primacy of matter and the way that that's supposed to uh, safeguard a primacy of kind of praxis through a series of, of, of kind of slightly singular maneuvers, um, relies on a um, theory of reflection, as he calls it, which he, uh, that is Adorno, traces back uh, all the way to, to, to kind of pre-Socratic um, uh, philosophies, uh, with the, the, the idea being that, you know, the world exists, you know, as it is, and is then somehow uh, mirrored, if you like, uh, as, as sense data, um, by, uh, you know, human sort of sensory uh, apparatus. In Lenin's book is a, is a kind of peculiar one because it's, it's really, um, it plays out a series of sort of factional debates within the sort of Soviet project, uh, you know, circa 1908, via an engagement with uh, other epistemologies and, and especially philosophies uh, engaging with questions of, of physics. Um, and uh, a lot turns on this um, the, this idea of you know sensory apparatus mirroring uh, a, a world that is above all you know material and real and somehow has primacy over these you know subjective whims that Len Lenin identifies in in, in other uh, a range of other uh, Russian and Soviet um, thinkers and Adorno takes up this this uh, observation you know without engaging actually with the issue in any in any great uh, depth as a polemical occasion to sort of say that well all this amounts to right this this kind of you know professing to a, a, a you know an investment in the primacy of matter is a kind of dogmatic and naive uh, sort of realism right which turns on a uh, an epistemology that uh, on its own you know kind of self-understanding uh 
relies very heavily on a notion of, of, of images, of the image, so to speak. And uh, what Adorno suggests more than spells out, right, is that this um, approach to materialism that Lenin sketches via this peculiar, you know, kind of discussion of physics and philosophy in the Russian or Soviet context circa 1908, right, that this, um, in fact, sits very oddly alongside the political um, stakes of what Lenin is professing to do. So uh, he, he, he claims, right, that um, it's difficult to see how the kind of, uh, you know, th- theory of mind, if you want to call it that, that Lenin is laying out there, how that is supposed to be conducive to the kind of uh, revolutionary and spontaneous uh, and so on, you know, praxis, uh, that um, th- that is supposed to be at the heart of, of Marxism or, or or you know any kind of uh, communism, really, and identifying this this uh, particular aspect, you know, whether he does so fairly or not, right? Identifying this particular dimension of Lenin's thought, then sets up a kind of a semantic field uh, in which Adorno can um, take up this notion of a thinking in kind of images, right, as the world as being primarily material and then being mirrored in thought in these kind of, you know, reflections uh, in a manner that is supposed to recall even uh, aspects of certain, you know, like pre-Socratic kind of materialisms, atomism and so on. Um, It opens up a semantic field where the polemic that Adorno um, sets up can turn rhetorically on a figure of an image ban, right? Because if you're not thinking in images that mirror reality in in, in the way that Lenin supposedly outlines, yeah, um, then what are you doing? Well, presumably you're thinking in something that is not images, right? Uh, and again, because the way Adorno presents this is as a materialism that is the dogmatic root of uh, a kind of, he calls it, I think, something like a religion of state, Right. So he introduces not just uh, um, a set of terms related to a thinking in images, uh, which on a certain reading, of course, and via Benjamin and so on, he does himself. But uh, he introduces also a set of terms to do with uh, questions of religion. And then suddenly, uh, you know, you're in quite, a, quite kind of an interesting arena in which Adorno can, on, on the terms that he has himself and maybe a bit conveniently set up for himself, he can introduce the figure of the image ban as a polemical sort of, you know, uh, like stab at uh, a notion of materialism that is supposed to lie at the root of uh, socialism as practiced in the Soviet Union uh, and, you know, its wider sphere of influence, which bearing in mind that Adorno was writing this in the 1960s uh, from his position in in West Germany as a uh, Marxist of sorts, but one unsympathetic to the way the project had panned out in the so-called Eastern Bloc, um, it, it kind of, you know, it, it occasions a rethinking of the philosophical stakes of Marxism, especially via the question of materialism, in its relation to something like praxis, in its relation to something like uh, f- um, like politics. Um, and that, I thought, was a curious thread to kind of follow up, even though I have to say my own interest in, in, uh, in Lenin per se, a bit like Adorno's, is, is ultimately limited. Um, and even though the the particular kind of um, conflicts uh, that uh, Lenin was engaged in, in in his own time and in his own context uh, are are really, I would say, in a sense, a matter of kind of specialist interest today because they're so far gone, right? Not only the physics uh, that informed them uh, is is you know now over a hundred years later kind of you know no, no longer state of the art. Um, but also the sort of uh, philosophical issues seems to seem to have been uh, 
overcome in a sense, although then curiously, of course, they are echoed in, in you know, for reasons of his own, I suppose, in, in that famous essay by uh, Quentin Meassou on the, um, on uh, Après la finitude, After finitude. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was just going to follow up and ask, uh, could you maybe say a few words about your Adornian critique of Meassou? All right. So you bring in at the end of this chapter um, on imageless imageless materialism, you bring in uh, Meassou's after finitude, and you show that the, the epistemic concerns that Adorno is dealing with in his critique of Lenin are not outdated. Um, maybe you could you could explain um, your sort of Adornian uh, take on Meassou uh, a little bit further. Yeah, yeah. Um, gosh, um, when I first arrived at Goldsmiths, just for for, for context, uh, Meassou was like really all the rage. That was still something people really were talking about. That essay uh, was was widely discussed uh, in in my early kind of grad school uh, days. I, I think the the um, interest in that text in particular has maybe subsided a little bit um, since then. Uh, also, since more of Meassou's project has kind of come into focus uh, and the particular status of that essay uh, came to be debated along other lines than maybe it was originally. But um, yeah, Meassou, uh, a figure that's often discussed in the context of what came to be known for, for, for better or worse as speculative realism, um, Meassou often discussed alongside uh, uh, authors associated with other n- new materialisms, uh, including people like Graham Harmon and so on, I mean, for all the differences between them. Uh, it's a curious and interesting uh, book, which um, in, in ma- makes the provocative and I think on its own terms persuasive claim that, you know, we may, may indeed and after all have access to something like mind-independent matter, um, which is, uh, in fact, um, you know, through through our through our thinking, through our kind of you know philosophical uh, lenses, uh, which is, you know, in a in a sense, uh, a claim that the book shares with 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 Lenin's big book on on materialism. Um, that and certain other parallels uh, are um, something that hadn't eluded some commentators. So I remember, I think it's uh, Zizek in his big book on Hegel picks up on this and kind of, you know, makes the claim that uh, Meassou's after finitude is a, is a reworking in, in a way of, of, of Lenin's theory of materialism or concept of materialism for the, the 21st um, century. I don't know if I'd go, go so far. I mean, the, the stated or explicit philosophical or, sorry, rather political um, stakes of Meassou's book are, you know, he keeps those much more, much you know, closer to his chest than 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 Lenin does. Um, it's not that this is in any obvious way a book about Lenin. It just so happens that some of its claims seem to 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 to, to, to mirror claims made previously by Lenin in their more pointedly sort of philosophical uh, register, which is obviously not something that people tend, in the first instance, to associate with Lenin, who's for good reason a figure thought of more in political terms and, you know, remembered for his kind of organizing and so on, maybe then for his philosophical reflections as such. But um, be that as it may, the provocative claim, as I said, was that, you know, one can have, you know, uh, despite uh, what Kant and others might have us believe, one can have, according to Meassou, uh, access to sort of, you know, mind-independent matter, the great out there, so to speak, you know, an absolute primacy of a of a kind of material world. Um, I try to then apply a... 
uh, a kind of an Adornian lens to this argument, which, as I say, in some respects mirrors um, Lenin's, to show that, you know, there's a danger of a kind of fetish of, uh, of immediacy, um, I think, in, in such thinking. And that also in the way, specific way that Meyasu uh, frames this question of uh, being, this question of, of uh, the necessity of contingency, as he puts it, the, the possibility of absolute, spontaneous, radical, ex nihilo transformation. But this poses uh, kind of um, what it poses in a sense kind of, you know, po- political problems because it's hard to see in the way that Meyasu, but uh, in, you know, related terms also Lenin, um, how they uh, ascribe um, any kind of agency to any sort of, you know, active political subject, right, in this process of, 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 of transformation that, uh, in this case, Meyasu is, is describing. So, I, I hope that by um, bringing in bringing Adorno's polemic against Lenin to bear on this particular text, the stakes of you know why we might want to talk about matter or materialism or the supposed primacy of matter in the context of a philosophical discussion that is in one way or another sort of Marx adjacent at the very least, why that why that should matter, and it seems to me that actually Adorno's point about you know dogmatically asserting you know the great out there as it were um, that that this is not helpful for a thinking about a transformative kind of politics. Partly because for Adorno, the uh, important thing about materialism is really to do with an alleviation of kind of bodily suffering and not with asserting, uh, you know, the, the existence of a great beyond that you can in one form or another kind of access intellectually. So I wanted to bring it back via Adorno to a conversation not about the potential for ex nihilo transformation because, you know, our whatever, you know, intellectual apparatus uh, prohibits us from seeing the fundamental instability of things out there and bring it back to a conversation about, you know, what, uh, at least according to Adorno, and I have to say on this point, I'm inclined to agree, what matters about matter, yeah, not to to labor the, the, the pun, right? What matters about matter, questions of, um, bodily suffering of uh, need and privation and of the uh, alleviation of, of bodily suffering, which is ultimately what a kind of materialist utopia on Adorno's terms would have to be uh, oriented towards. Um, one thing I should add with regards to all of this um, is that the reason I begin with a chapter on epistemology is that, you know, v- in a very basic sense, I think the question of the image ban in Adorno is about how to figure, how to portray, how to represent, how to think, how to uh, intellectually kind of, you know, f- fix um, an, an, an image of a world beyond suffering and privation, beyond, you know, in, in injustice and and, uh, and 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 all the rest. And the epistemic or epistemological challenge, I suppose, is, well, how do you portray, figure, represent a world that is categorically different to the one that we have if the only tools that you have at your disposal for representing such a world are the ones that, by definition, as it were, already exist, right? So how do you think your way out of that 
corner, so to speak. Uh, and it seems to me that Adorno's appeal to materialism is supposed to introduce into this kind of you know, intellectual puzzle a kind of somatic dimension. And the insistence on the mere existence on, the great, uh, on a great beyond or a great out there, as it were, right? You know, asserting the absolute primacy of mind-independent matter to Adorno, and I have to say, like I say, um, I'm inclined to agree with him on this. It's not clear to me what that does uh, to a conversation about, you know, transformative kind of social practices or or politics for that matter. I think that that makes uh, quite a bit of sense and really sort of lays out the the stakes that are oftentimes so obscured in the, in the discourse on Adorno and this very sort of dense um, dense thinker. Um, I was wondering maybe maybe we can move uh, a bit to talk about this idea of uh, inverse theology that you spend a lot of time. This is actually how I came to your work initially. I was looking and navigating the sort of various literatures on uh, the theological discourse connected to Adorno, which is sort of very disorienting when you first get there. And I really enjoyed that chapter in this book because I think you are one of the clearest voices that speaks to the particularities of how Adorno picks up on theological thought in a structural fashion, right? In order to articulate his own theory, he's not doing theology or speculating on the Godhead, but there are these theological images that recur that are sort of like contribute formally to the way that Adorno is thinking. Um, So my question is maybe more for our listeners uh, who might not be familiar with the theological discourse surrounding Adorno. Why is theology a relevant concept when talking about Adorno at all? Right. When we're talking about this, this materialist Marxist thinker, why, why are we using a theological metaphors to begin with? Yeah, quite right. Uh, well, uh, first of all, I'm glad you enjoyed the chapter um, and the article that it's based on. That's uh, great to hear. Thank you. Um, there, there is, as you say, a, a slim but you know kind of growing uh, body of writings that is picked up on, um, you know, if nothing else, the recurrence of kind of theological figures, motifs, terms, and so on in Adorno's thinking. Um, as I said at the beginning, it, it, it's uh, striking that this should be the case because it's not obvious uh, how, how that works. You know, Adorno is quite um, explicit at various points throughout his work that um, you know traditional theolo- uh, theology uh, is is kind of historically outmoded. Positive religion is not restorable. These are facets of you know uh, what what he uh, elsewhere might describe as a kind of dialectic of enlightenment. Of, of, of course. Uh, Religion and theology, and the uh, kind of you know mosaic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity in particular, um, c- contain elements of truth, kernels of of uh, of, of, of truth, um, salvageable and redeemable uh, moments. But uh, overall, they uh, are what they are, which is to say, kind of outmoded moments in the unfolding of a grand kind of historical narrative uh, that Adorno uh, adopts uh, and adapts. Um, from 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 Hegel to to to, to some measure. Having said that, um, one of the things that I believe justifies his recourse to terms like the image band, to you know, also figures like the the, the messianic light, to which he sometimes uh, re- refers, is is a peculiar kind of uh, constellation, uh, historical uh, constellation that um, emerges and that I think can be um, you know placed arguably under the, the banner of what, what you know, Adorno's friend Walter Benjamin uh, calls a kind of capitalist cult 
religion, right? Modernity uh, in its unfolding in a story, you know, loosely uh, uh, akin to, to to the one told uh, often by the likes of, of Max Weber, whose work, of course, Adorno knew well. Uh, modernity and the unfolding of capitalism kind of, you know, usurps the traditional place of, of religion in the in the present on this uh, version of, of events uh, to the point that um, capitalism in a way starts to function in the present uh, almost like a religion with its terrible sort of feast days as uh, Benjamin describes them. And it means that in a sort of improbable uh, move, if you follow um, Adorno via Benjamin or via Weber, if you if you prefer, um, it means that the outmoded terms of theology lend themselves in an improbable kind of twist of events to the criticism of uh, present, you know, dominated by a kind of capitalistic cult religion, if you like. Right. So that's one uh, reason uh, that I think, you know, if we follow Adorno on his own terms, justifies his recourse to such figures. And the other um, is that, you know, what survives in aspects of the kind of Jewish and Christian theology with which Adorno um, engages is a yearning for transcendence, for reconciliation, for redemption of a certain kind, which, um, again, you know, if nothing else, I think is at the very least a kind of uh, rhetorical or semantic um, strategy with which to intimate something beyond, you know, what Adorno describes, I think, evocatively as like a spellbound sphere of existence, of, you know, a a world that has been um, thoroughly kind of... uh, disenchanted, as it were. So there's the, there's the particular constellation of events which uh, puts uh, theology or religion into a particular kind of you know, alignment with, with uh, the capitalist present on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is the uh, yearning for uh, something like you know, kind of redemption, utopia, the uh, overcoming of worldly injustice and so on, on the, on the other. And uh, all those, um, or, or rather these two factors, I think play a particular role. There is a third kind of dimension to this, which is a little more uh, textual, if you like, um, and it is to do with Adorno's, um, you know, longstanding French, uh, friendship and uh, close engagement with uh, the work of, of Walter Benjamin, also um, through uh, his friend and erstwhile kind of mentor, uh, Paul Tillich, the Protestant theologian, through his engagement with, with Kierkegaard and a variety of other uh, thinkers, you know, who, who operate with, with terms that are at least borrowed from religion or theology, even if they are not always, you know, in any positive sense, uh, religious or theological. So it winds up being a peculiar set of terms that lend themselves uh, for the reasons I hope I just, uh, you know, was able to at least point to, that lend themselves to Adorno's effort to lay out the... Um, the, the the wider stakes of his kind of project. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, I think um, that really helps to sort of clarify this other side of Adorno, which is oftentimes sort of not focused on and in the focus on negativity, if the, the way in which these theological images operate in, in negativity point towards maybe some sort of um, perhaps a little bit more hopeful sides of Adorno. Okay. And, and, in your reprise, uh, right, the last the last section uh, of your book, you include a reflection on the politics that follow from Adorno's negative philosophy, from this idea of negativity, of imagelessness. Um, and you write, quote, 
uh, Adorno's negative dialectic is both less and more political than his critics suggest, end quote. Can you maybe say a few words on how you understand Adorno's politics, how, how that sort of relates to this, this discourse of theology, and then uh, how you think his critics get him wrong? Yeah, right. Um, okay, uh, both less and more political than his critics suggest Adorno's politics. Um, Adorno doesn't have a positive conception of politics that he lays out in any of his major works. Adorno doesn't have a positive conception of a lot of things. Adorno carves out uh, positions uh, that you might then kind of, from, from which you might then infer certain uh, things, as it were, right? Uh, by, by playing off kind of existing positions, right? It's often uh, uh, a case of, you know, playing off Kant against Hegel or Hegel against Kant and, you know, kind of course correcting this, that or the other with a reference to uh, romanticism or with a reference to Weber or Kierkegaard or, or Marx or Benjamin or, or any of the other kind of uh, players in, in his um, in his uh, in, in his project or figures that inform his his project. Um, I think that can be uh, said of uh, various sort of like nascent um, dimensions of, of his thinking, including, for example, his ethics, uh, but also and significantly, I would say, his his politics. Um, Adorno, as a as a person, you know, as a citizen, if you like, was of course a, a, a politically engaged uh, person, up to date on current events, and engaged in various uh, uh, struggles, uh, you know, famously and contentiously uh, with with the German student movement. But if you know, if you read the uh, lectures, there are frequent references to uh, apartheid in South Africa, to the war in Vietnam. Uh, it, you know, Adorno was a, a political person in the in the conventional sense. Um, in what sense is Adorno less political than uh, than than that might appear? Well, he's he's often criticized by you know from a range of different uh, camps for being a kind of you know resigned aesthete uh, who has uh, cornered himself and in an impossible and uh, uh, you know total uh, kind of negativity that doesn't allow for uh, any uh, hope or, um, or 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 uh, socially transformative praxis to 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 take place because it's all always already implicated in um, the workings of you know the, the the kinds of coercive operations of reason which in a way he's trying to, to to overturn right that's the classic kind of criticism it's something that you get versions of uh, in, in Habermas it's something that you get versions of in uh, you know to to the left of that in uh, the camp of Adorno's uh, former students, including figures like um, Hans-Jürgen Kral. And you get a a, a different version, but nonetheless related, I would argue, uh, in the work of people like Agamben and Jakob Taubes, who insist that, you know, Adorno... um, Adorno's negativity means that all he can ever do is kind of intimate a sort of, you know, as-if regulative image of what ought to be, but that can never be reached because of, you know, reasons that are ultimately similar to what... Habermas says, which is that if everything is implicated, well, how can you hope to um, lay out positively an image of the redeemed world to which you are uh, ostensibly, uh, th- that you're ostensibly working um, towards? Um, why do I think that that's not a fair, in all instances, a fair account of Adorno? Well, it seems to me that if you take seriously the um, scope and scale 
of the transformation in thinking and by extension acting and kind of you know inhabiting right the world that Adorno demands then in fact you know politics itself would have to undergo a certain kind of transformation it starts fairly modestly uh, in Adorno's kind of epistemology of thinking about relationships between you know what he calls subject and object but uh, these poles or coordinates in Adorno's um, project, I think, have are supposed to have real material correlates in the relationship between, say, humankind and nature, as it were, right? Or, um, yeah, let's stick with that one. And to think a rapprochement or a kind of reconciliation between these um, just for the sake of explication, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them <laughs> you know, sort of epistemological uh, terms, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have to reconfigure the very manner of thinking in a way that is so far-reaching, right, that uh, the perspective reconciliation between these poles, right, is really what politics would have to mean. The narrow sphere of kind of governance and administration is, uh, I mean, you know, of course, those are things with which one must engage because this is the world that we, as it were, live in. But, you know, to really um, think a kind of Adornian politics in the emphatic sense, I think would require uh, one to follow through on what it is that he demands in, you know, various points in his work, including some of the ones I touch on in the book. Um, Derrida uh, once remarked of Adorno that, you know, it, it's an effort to that, that the whole project can be summarized as an effort to think thinking differently, right? Um, and I think it's only if you can do that, if you can kind of get to grips with this sort of you know puzzle, uh, philosophical riddle or problem of what it might mean to picture a world beyond suffering and injustice from the inside out in acknowledgement of the fact that you are doing so in terms that are always already complicit in the problem that you're trying to overcome. Once you are squarely in that arena, yeah, uh, then a thinking of reconciliation between these kind of, you know, poles that had once uh, in the history of philosophy become torn asunder, right, uh, is, is really, uh, properly speaking, the arena of kind of politics, I think, for Adorno. And in this respect, I would say he is more political, than his critics let, let on because the um, implications are so far-reaching. It's only if you think thinking differently, right, that you can imagine a different kind of uh, relationship between, let's say, subject and object or humankind and nature. And it is only when you can attain the state of what Adorno, I think, very suggestively and evocatively calls peace, for example, in his writings on Hölderlin, right, um, that's something like a, a, a different conception of kind of universality, a different set of relations in which we and with which we inhabit a world, right? Um, and that seems to me to be rather more emphatic than the kind of, you know, local uh, stakes, however legitimate, okay, of, uh, for example, you know, the German student movement, important as those were to Adorno and important as they may be to us today. So, yeah, less political in the sense that... Uh, you know, Karl, for example, was surely right to point out that Adorno had abandoned the field of, you know, kind of uh, struggle, um, you know, as part of the student protests. But I would say that there's ultimately something 
more political in what he was proposing because you know to 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 really think transformation in the terms that he does is something very very far reaching indeed and it would it it's there's something kind of uncompromising about it what he calls a utopia of cognition you know these notions of a differentiation without domination and what that would mean and how that would look is ultimately what adorno's project i think aims at except that it is faced with its own kind of um abidance by this figure of the image ban which means that those are only ever um how should i say uh those are only ever um, I hesitate to call them like you know outcomes that you can kind of cast into relief. You can intimate them negatively, but they, they're um, elusive, right? If you start to sketch them out in in existent or in extant uh, terms, right, then you're um, running the danger of reproducing the conditions that you're trying to overcome, right? It's it's, it's a tricky position for. Or Dorna to be in, yeah. But I do think that it has a very emphatically utopian, prospective kind of horizon, and I think to acknowledge that rather than shirk back from it, as many of his critics I think uh, do, uh, seems to me to be ultimately quite a hopeful position rather than a, you know, hopeless one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's such a wonderful way of. Um summarizing Adorno's thought in a way that overcomes this this trendy way of presenting uh, Adorno's politics as a, some sort of regressive or, um, you know, abstract Ivy Tower sort of uh, mode of thinking um, and ties in the the real materialistic concerns that are that are always sort of carried with carried through with Adorno, um, but also sort of acknowledging the sort of divorce of the way that Adorno thinks transformation from a like thinkable praxis uh, or like a translatable praxis. I think that um, that's really helpful. So maybe now, and I think this actually might help um, to, um, to elucidate some of the some of the politics that you were just talking about, um, we've talked about sort of the, the theological, the epistem, uh, epistemological roots or structures in Adorno's thought. I thought it might also make sense to talk about sort of the other half of the concerns that the title of your book confesses, namely the aesthetic. Right, as Adorno himself says, the Old Testament ban on images has an aesthetic as well as a theological dimension. Right, so we're, we're you're very much. Um, uh, like half half of the book is is dealing with it with the aesthetics uh, of the Dorno's aesthetic theory, um, uh, in a in a wonderful way that really elucidated things for me. You write um, for Adorno, neither aesthetics nor theory turn out to be adequate for an understanding of art. What he proposes instead is a reflection on the inadequacies of these approaches, particularly where they are thought together. In short, for Adorno, the significance of art. It lies precisely in the fact that it eludes theorization while at the same time demanding it, end quote. Could you maybe say a bit more about the epistemic contraction involved in the image ban and how that helps us to, to better understand uh, art? Yeah, art in, in Adorno. Um, you know, Adorno places a great uh, burden on uh, the sorts of operations, intellectual or otherwise, that he associates with, you know, what he calls autonomous works of art, which in this passage that you just quoted back and that I quote in the book, uh, he associates with the theological ban on images. 
Um, I mean, again, there's a, a few different ways to to, to approach this. Um, I mean, just by way of kind of like mapping out the terrain. In in the first instance, I think this is to do uh, with the fact that Adorno picks up on the frequent, uh, it, you know, surprisingly frequent recurrence of this uh, motif of the Old Testament ban on images in the history of, of modern German thought, in Kant, in Hegel in particular. Uh, and these are uh, two figures that I closely um, engage with through Adorno in that chapter on, on aesthetics. So Kant and Hegel in their respective writings on on art um, and and uh, aesthetics. So th- that's you know one important thing to note. Adorno is uh, uh, taking us on a detour, uh, a, a kind of a, a renewed engagement with the history of German uh, thought. A quick aside on that, um, I think that it's probably also worth noting that the reason that Adorno keeps kind of, you know, taking us back to uh, conversations of the kind that are being had by Kant and Hegel, where these references to the image ban in their talkings about art and so on um, occur. The reason he does that is because um, he is, I think, um, skeptical of the uh, notion that uh, Marxism, and this is you know, in the end, a tradition that I would say he he considers himself a part of, that Marxism has, in fact, adequately dealt with philosophy and sort of left it behind. So, you know, revisiting figures like that in these terms is important because uh, the criticism of philosophy, which is ultimately supposed to yield its kind of practical overcoming, right, uh, is is as yet uh, incomplete. So, it, you know, he continues to engage with with such questions for, for those reasons. Now, um, I think Adorno is, in a sense, uh, also skeptical of the idea that philosophy on its own terms can produce its own overcoming, right? And so he displaces some of that uh, work uh, that would have to uh, occur, right, into different um, registers and different arenas. Uh, and the most prominent of these, I suppose, is, uh, is, is art, kind of broadly conceived, uh, I mean, to anyone who's who's uh, read much Adorno, you know, you'll be aware uh, that at least half of the, uh, the the collected writings are are writings on music, right? So th- there's really a good deal of engagement with with music, with literature, less so with the visual arts, but certainly with problems of philosophical aesthetics. Um, one of the uh, specific um, aesthetic uh, issues with which Adorno um, engages via his reading of Kant and via his reading of Hegel, partly because this figure of the image ban occurs so prominently in their aesthetic writings, or at least at prominent kind of junctures, is this question of the um, beauty of nature. Uh, What Adorno wants is for the way that the experience of beauty and of the beauty in nature in particular, the, the way that that is theorized, the way that that plays out, he wants that to in 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 works of of, of art paradoxically <laughs> he wants that to be the arena in which a reconfigured relationship between humankind and nature subject and object that i was saying before uh, to, to to kind of you know tacitly e- emerge right he he needs the aesthetic because it is uh, also an arena of the kind of uh, somatic it is uh, partly also to do n- not just with the structures of judgment, but also with um, a kind of bodily experience that preempts, I think, something else, as it were. 
artworks speak according to Adorno. And what they say, if you <coughs> engage with them carefully, excuse me, um, is everything to do with the kind of, you know, rifts and dislocations of the present. Ironically, for Adorno, nature, right, which is also kind of noumenal, not something that you can in any immediate sense kind of put your finger on. It's something that appears kind of obliquely uh, in its most thoroughly mediated uh, kind of representations in, in, in art. It's through... Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a complicated set of kind of, you know, uh, coordinates with which Adorno is operating because he, he, he borrows a set of kind of assumptions from other figures along the way, which aren't just Kant and Hegel. An important one is Lukács. He borrows this idea of a second nature, um, which uh, basically says that, you know, an uh, immediate approach to a, something like a first nature, you know, a real nature out there is, 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 is not possible, right? That we live in a world that is so thoroughly um, conventional, right? Um, that even our uh, relationship to, to what we call nature is, 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 in a sense, you know, always already heavily mediated by all of these um, factors. But the consequence of that is that um, the relationship to art as it plays out, sorry, the relationship to nature as it plays out in art becomes an occasion to kind of uh, obliquely relate to this uh, you know, point with which you might like to prospectively reconcile, right, as a, as a subject, namely nature. Uh, and uh, it is through an experience of works of art that require you to undergo almost a degree of kind of suffering, right, <laughs> that you can intimate what ought to be, as it were. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated, um, you know, kind of uh, picture that he uh, lays out for us, but in his engagement with the tradition of kind of philosophical aesthetics that goes from Kant via Hegel and Schelling and so on and into the, the, the present, Adorno wants to invite us to consider um, the uh, notion of natural beauty in a bid to reimagine a possible kind of reconciliation, as he would call it, uh, between humankind and nature. Um, and that this is ultimately the arena in which the kind of utopian... Um, you know, kind of thrust of, of, of his thinking, I think, really comes to, 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 to be most palpable, albeit, as always, in a way that is kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that, is, that is, you know, quite thoroughly negative. Um, I don't know if I can put it any more clearly. It's a, it's a it's a peculiar thing because it's where all of the registers of, of, of Adorno's thinking kind of overlap, right? There's an epistemological claim in there. There's a kind of ethical claim in there. Uh, and uh, it all plays out in the um, sort of aesthetic uh, arena. And to the extent that Adorno believes that all of the contradictions that, you know, unearths in, uh, in, 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 you know, various kind of philosophical texts, schools, approaches, and so on, to the extent that he believes that they all have a real material correlate in kind of, you know, <laughs> uh, in, in, in historical life, as it were, this modest lens of, you know, looking at kind of artworks actually bears a really significant kind of weight. There's a lot that's going 
on there. And in a way, you can kind of retro-engineer, uh, you know, where Adorno sort of like started um, in, in his philosophical concerns, starting with his inaugural lecture on the actuality of philosophy with his critique of idealism. You can retro-engineer that from the standpoint of his aesthetics much, much later on. It's it's the f- final formulation, if you like, of Adorno's uh, thinking. And because it's a fragment, it's also a beautifully suggestive and inviting one, the um, aesthetic theory, I mean. Um, and since there are such prominent references to the image ban in there, in their relation to 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 works of uh, of art, which are supposed to be these sort of, you know, uh, imageless imageless images of utopia, if if you like, um, I think it's well worth looking there for for kind of um, answers or for clues. This is of course also where the kind of you know charges of of elitism and so on kind of come from, right? Because uh, the, the the works that Adorno cites um, are often quite demanding and presuppose uh, quite a lot of uh, viewers in a way that doesn't come easily, right? But I guess, well, anyway, that's uh, that's where he chose to place his emphasis, right? Uh, Thank you so much. I think that's just a wonderful sort of um, summary of of the stakes that are going on in the book, uh, but also sort of of Adorno's thought as a whole, which is in a way sort of how I understood uh, this book as I was reading it. Um, uh, Just wonderful, clear, crisp prose, uh, which on a subject dealing with Kant, Hegel, and Adorno is not not what you always find. Uh, I really enjoyed it. We're, we're unfortunately running out of time here. Um, thank you so much for joining us. I just have one final question, and uh, that is, what are you working on now? Well, uh, first of all, let me just say once more, thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you about this uh, book, which seems uh, a long way away at this point. Uh, like I say, you know, it started life as a PhD dissertation. I completed it in 2016, and I haven't done a great deal on Adorno since then. So uh, some of these um, points I'm trying to remember, you know, as we as we speak. But um, um, anyway, I, I, I do hope um, that, you know, listeners will have taken something away from this. Absolutely, absolutely. What am I working on now? Uh, I am working on a project on the concept of community um, as it emerges in the writings of uh, Friedrich Hölderlin, the uh, great uh, late 18th, early 19th century uh, German poet, you know, quasi kind of romantic outlier uh, on, on some readings. Uh, and in particular, I'm interested in the way that this term um, is brought out uh, by uh, three of his early 20th century readers, uh, and they are um, Walter Benjamin, uh, Gustav Landauer, and Franz Rosenzweig. Um, And uh, I hope to turn this uh, into a book eventually on uh, figures of community in Hölderlin and his uh, readers, these three readers in particular. And and what I'm interested in is uh, how... Communities with uh, nature, uh, certain kinds of political community, and uh, certain kinds of community with divinity, if you like, are conceptualized by these authors um, in a manner that is, in each case, very pointedly not national, not nationally coded, which in the history of Hölderlin's uh, reception uh, obviously plays a, a kind of role. So whilst that you know, may be a, a footnote, in a sense, to... Uh, Hölderlin's reception and to Hölderlin more generally, um, I do hope that the um, wider resonance of that uh, theme actually uh, will prove to have 
you know some bearing on 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 the present, uh, not just in the you know specifically German context, but uh, more generally. That sounds so exciting. Thank you so much for joining us, Sebastian uh, Chuskalaski. Everyone, uh, the book was Adorno and the Ban on Images. My name is Lucas Hoffman. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Lucas.